It's now 9 o'clock, and we're going to go ahead and start. So if you would, pull out your Bibles, and uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, hey, there's the bell, so that's good. Starting right on time. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're just going to be dealing with two verses today, and that's probably a good thing, because based on what's in these two verses, there's no way we could go any further. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'll be surprised if we can get to the end of, of everything I've got to say, but... Uh, this is a, a very um, thick with theological content, and so please uh, bear with me. I'm going to try, too, to, I mean, a lot of the material I've got in here, I was hoping to have some dialogue and stuff like that. I'm not sure how much of that we can do today um, right here, but because I, I want to leave the dialogue for the discussion groups. But All right, First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask your blessings upon our time here in your word. We thank you for it. We thank you for the transforming nature of your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would guide our our discussion, guide guide our hearts and our minds, guide my lips, Lord. May the, the, um, the words that I speak and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when I, when I read Paul or when I think about Paul, I end up getting a bit of a, a plastic idea of him and sometimes the rest of the apostles. It's, it's almost like, um, I don't know, I attribute too much to him. I, I kind of consider Paul such a, uh, an untouchable kind of guy, right? And I don't know, though, that I, I, I uh, get that from Peter, <laughs> Um, there are a lot of other other people through Christian history that I'd say the same thing about. You know, Augustine, he's an ascetic, a force to be reckoned with. I think of uh, I think of Luther. Basically, he's an insult comic with a hammer. And I, I think of <laughs> I think of uh, Knox as just irascible, or as Zwingli, a warmonger. I mean, didn't he die in battle for goodness sake? But Peter, I get something different, and I, I think Bob kind of hit on it last week when he was talking about Peter and as he gave kind of a um, biography of him. How do you describe Peter? I'd love to hear the words you guys have. How would you describe Peter? I'm sorry? All in. in. Oh, I like that. A golden retriever? (laughs) Willing to, to, uh, enthusiastic and kind of wants to to please. I like that. Yeah, Mark? Blue collar. Blue collar. Oh, I've got Mark and Mark on the same line, so, yeah. Blue collar, yeah. Are you talking just about his fishing or about other things? His, his, his approach to life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that. That's good. Any others? Self-conscious. Self-conscious. Yeah, yet not self-conscious enough to stop talking. Yeah. Worried about what others think of him. yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. 
Yeah. <laughs> After the fact, yeah, certainly. Yeah. yeah good. It, yes. Yeah. So. Just from certain accounts in the Gospels, I use the word, um, I just lost my mind. Um, uh, impulsive. Yeah, impulsive. No kidding. Do you guys kind of, um, do you kind of identify with those kinds of things? Do you, do you feel like, hey, this, this guy Peter, he's, he's, uh, he's a guy I could get along with. <laughs> Does he seem less plastic to you than perhaps Paul? <laughs> do you think so? Yeah. Mark, you were shaking your head. What's... He, he might be kind of annoying. You know? <laughs> yeah, he might be kind of annoying. You don't know whether the filter is on or not. That's true. That's true. Well, I think, uh, I think he just seems human. At least that's how he seems to me. And I like that about him. And I like that too because when we get to his epistles, First and Second Peter, we end up seeing something that is, uh, it, it at first feels a little out of character for him. Uh, just because those are the things that we think about. And, um, but then when we really get down to it and we dig in, we end up seeing that, that humanity and then also the transformation that has occurred within his life this transformed humanity that ends up being um, communicating well, at least, at least to myself. And, and I think that as we go through 1 Peter, we're going to see that reasonableness and earnestness from him really come out. And I think really that you see it right here in the first two verses, um, our passage today. We know from Bob's introduction last week and from our passage today that uh, this was written to the churches in Pontus, and Galatia, and Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bithynia. Those were five provinces that make up most of modern-day Turkey. In fact, pretty much everything but the southern part of, of, uh, of the Mediterranean coast there in, in Turkey. Um, and there was actually another province, Cilicia, which had a city called Tarsus in it. You may have heard of that. But um, this is just actually for Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and it goes all the way up to the Black Sea coast. These were five, uh, five provinces that the Romans had in that area. They had been conquered by, I think, Pompey the Great, right before uh, Caesar ended up kind of fighting him, if you like your history. And then this was written by Peter, obviously, right? Um, in fact, Bob went into some of, the, uh, some of the facts that people don't like, that they, that, uh, or they like to argue whether it actually is Peter or not. Um, but And so we're not going to argue about that. Then why was he actually writing this? Once again, to encourage the Christians living in these provinces to remain faithful and to stand firm in the grace of God, as we see in chapter 5, verse 12. Specifically amidst suffering, persecution, hostility, and antagonism. Basically to come. This actually comes before the, the hostility and the suffering and the persecution that is to come. And what would lead to this writing? Well, it's because God knew that it was coming. And in fact, if you pick up a, a book, uh, um, copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll actually see a pretty good rundown of the ten persecutions that were uh, done against the Christians in Rome. I encourage you to look at it, because not long after the writing of this book, maybe five, maybe ten years, came Nero's persecution, in which Peter himself died, as Bob brought up last time. But then, only about 15 years after that, comes a, another persecution from Domitian, and then only about 20 years after that comes another one under Trajan and then Adrian. And it lasts for about 30 years. 
And really, if you go down through and read about all of the happenings that occurred in those 10 persecutions, you end up seeing that Asia Minor, this part of, of modern-day Turkey, ends up being the hardest hit. It's, most of them end up being kind of localized, depending on who the governor was and how hostile he was to Christianity. And so you'll see it pop up in Rome, or you'll see it down in Egypt, or you'll see it in Spain or in France, or Gaul, whatever. Um, but... Asia Minor seemed to have just governor after governor after governor who wanted to stamp out Christianity. They hated it. All the way up until the very last one under Galerius, who was Caesar to uh, Diocletian. And Galerius administered that province, and he hated Christianity. And then part of what ends up kind of causing the political structure that we see for a thousand years after is he only had control over the east, And a certain guy named Constantine was out west. And so we see this split occur, and then we see everything get seismically changed up when Constantine defeats Galerius. But that that brings an end to the persecutions, or at least persecutions of that type. And so God is using Peter to prepare these people for a couple hundred years of persecution after persecution after persecution with very few rests and respites in between. But here's the thing. Peter gives them a reason for the triumph and the hope that they should rest in as they go into these persecutions. As he kind of talks to them about what they should expect and how they should deal with it, one of the first things that he does is right here in these verses, as he gives a greeting, he sets up the reason for their triumph and the hope to come. And I want to read our verses again, since it's real short, and then we'll dig right down deep into it, because there's some really wonderful stuff in here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So, once again, Peter addresses this as coming from himself. We are told this is Peter. I say let the modernists who can't believe anything argue that it isn't Peter. Honestly, it must be tiring to argue everything, right? And yet you pick up an academic book and they do want to argue it like crazy. We either believe what is written in the Bible or we don't. Am I right about that? Because, uh, in fact, you've heard of uh, Lewis's trifold dilemma of Jesus as either liar, lunatic, or Lord. We kind of get the same thing with the scripture. um, we We have to make up our minds about it because it doesn't leave the option open for us to only believe a portion and to to not believe the rest, right? So test it, for sure, test it. But don't test God in it, right? Um, So there's a point at which our faith in God and who he is actually takes over. And one of the reasons why I'm I'm talking about this is because I've had this argument with a few people lately that that, uh, there's a point at which our faith in God and in who he is, in his attributes ends up having to take over and we have to realize if he's sovereign enough to be able to create the whole world and to hold it up in the palm of his hand, if he's omnipotent enough, if he's omniscient enough, then doesn't it also stand to reason that he would be strong enough to preserve his scriptures? Man, 
I, I, I don't understand. I, I, it's certainly a lack of faith, but I don't understand the lack of logic that goes with that, with then undermining portions of it just for the sake of undermining them or for the sake of, of trying to get in good with the academic community. I don't, I don't see the... I don't see that that is uh, worthwhile. So we believe that this is Peter who wrote the book because internal and external evidence says so. And we argue against it only to reveal our own silliness and lack of faith. But he describes himself as an apostle. And we know, you know, this is a word that we get a lot in here. And we know it simply means sent one or messenger or ambassador or representative in the original Greek. But it becomes a title when we look at it within scripture. And with this title comes... Three qualifications. Chosen directly by the Lord Jesus. Perform the signs of an apostle. Signs and wonders and mighty works. And then eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. That's what make up an, a true apostle of Jesus Christ. And you notice that those three things, what, chosen directly by Jesus Christ, um, uh, come, excuse me, performing the signs of an apostle, and then eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. When we see that, it actually once again, reassures us about the message that they're bringing because the message comes with authority. It comes straight from Jesus Christ himself as the apostles are the the, uh, foundation upon which the church is built. So we should then receive these words in that way, right? Receive them as coming from the Lord. We receive them as apostolic. We receive them. And once again, that word receive is key because... (laughs) We believe that God has preserved his word, the words that have been passed on to us in the scriptures. All right. And it's this apostleship which leads him to write this letter because he's concerned about the church of Christ. He's concerned about the church of God and the persecutions and sufferings that they're about to go through. But to whom is he writing? The ESV says, some of you probably have it, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Whereas the KJV says, to the strangers scattered, or um, Christian Standard Bible says, to the temporary residents dispersed in. And then the NASB, which is what I'm using, actually says, to those who reside as aliens. Now, the, the reason I call out ESV is because actually it's probably a better rendering when you look at the original Greek. The ESV says, those who are elect exiles of this dispersion. I'm going to get into that a little bit more later on, but I just want to call that out. So who is he writing to? He's talking to the aliens or exiles who are dispersed amongst these provinces. And they were chosen to be dispersed, okay? I want you to keep that in mind. Clearly, he's not talking, when he says, when he uses the word aliens or exiles here, aliens specifically, I want to hone in on that because that's probably the best rendering of the Greek word. Clearly, he's not talking about little green men from Mars, the Greek word here is uh, parapodemos, and it's used three times in the New Testament. And I want to go through those three instances because they shed a lot of light on why Peter would be utilizing that word in this context and as he lays the groundwork for um, how to deal with suffering and persecution. When we look at those other instances, we suddenly get, like a, 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 get more, a more full view of the meaning. First, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11 real quick. Hebrews chapter 11. We're all familiar with this chapter, the Hall of Fame of Faith, all these people who are doing things by faith, and we get this wonderful verse 13, 
where we, um, where we see the word. He says in uh, Hebrews 11, verse 13, All these, meaning those who were faithful, died in faith without receiving the promises, those promises which they had put their hope in. But having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Okay, so they died in faith without receiving the promises, but they saw them nonetheless, right? They saw them nonetheless, and confessed that they were strangers and exiles. The word exiles here, rather than strangers, is the parapodemos word from uh, 1 Peter 1. But the writer of Hebrews goes on. Look at, uh, look at verse 14. For those who say such things, what do they say? They say that they're strangers and exiles on this earth. Those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. So, okay, he's talking about these who are scattered. If they were talking about that, that land and calling themselves strangers in the land they were in because they had been dispersed, they could have gone back, right? But that's not what they're talking about. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So did you catch that? They died having not seen their homeland again, but they died not caring about that country. Because they were, they were homesick not for Jerusalem and the hills of Israel. They were homesick for a land which they had never seen. It's a heavenly homesickness that pervaded everything within them. And made them realize that they were not and could not be at home here. And thus God was pleased or not ashamed, as it says here, to be called their God. You know, the Air Force loves to move people. With me being an Air Force brat and then in the Air Force myself and then working for the Air Force, I estimate I've probably moved well over 50 times, lived in well over 20, um, had at least 20 big moves. I mean, like uh, cross-country, that sort of thing. And it really wears on you over time. You kind of yearn for home, and you don't really know where it is. Um, but you desire greatly for it. And here's the thing. It's not here on earth. That's the one thing I know. It's not here on earth. You may have lived here in Dayton your whole life, or at least nearby, or you lived one place, you grew up in one place, and you know where that home is. You can go back there and find your parents, your grandparents, and all of your siblings. You might know that, but don't be mistaken. That's not where your home is. And I think that's what, what Peter's trying to say in our passage. Those who pine for the world, those who pine for it, even for their loved homeland, their loved home city, with all of its smells and feels and... and uh, Sights and sounds, tastes. Man, I, I need some good Mexican food sometimes. They'll never find their home. Those who really pine for it because it's not here on earth. Because the world is passing away along with its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. First John two seventeen. Here's a quote that I love from G.K. Chesterton. This is from Orthodoxy. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's a pretty interesting book. Throw out what you don't like. But I love the way he puts things. He says, 
quote, I had often called myself an optimist to avoid the too evident blasphemy of pessimism. But all the optimism of the age had been false and disheartening for this reason, that it had always been trying to prove that we fit into the world. But the Christian optimism is based on the fact that we do not fit into the world. I had been right in feeling all things as odd, for I myself was at once worse and better than all things. The modern philosopher had told me again and again that I was in the right place, and I had still felt depressed even in acquiescence. But I heard that I was in the wrong place, and my soul sang for joy like a bird in spring. I now knew why I could feel homesick at home, unquote. I like that. I now know why I can feel homesick at home. You've probably felt it yourself. When everything seems like it should be just perfect, it's embracing you, and you're happy where you are, and then you realize, though, that something is still missing. One commentator says that Psalm 84 actually was written by a guy who seemed like he was homesick. Now, he's specifically homesick for the temple... Turn over there, Psalm 84. But what we also see is that it's not necessarily the temple specifically that he's homesick for. He's homesick for the Lord who inhabits it. I'm just going to look at three different verses. Because in this this passage, he ends up using the term blessed or happy three different times in three different ways. And I want you to see how this, this homesickness that he's trying to express comes out. And I hope what we can do is also express it in this way. In verse 4, he's, he uses the term wistfully in verse 4, the term for blessed or happy. Wistfully, when he says, How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. So he wistfully desires to be in the home of God, or the house of God. Doing what? Praising him. Then go down to verse 5. So he used the term wistfully in verse 4. Now he uses it resolutely in verse 5. He says, How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. So he's resolute in saying that the strength of a man is in where his focus lies, and that that focus actually leads him onto the highways to Zion. Isn't that a wonderful picture? I like that resolutely stepping forward with your eyes fixed on Jesus and it's a highway to Zion. That's what, what that, uh, this, this pining in our heart for Christ, when it's focused upon Christ, it leads us into the highways to Zion. Isn't that wonderful? Now skip down to verse 12. In verse 12, he uses the term in deep commitment, uh, contentment. So first it's um, wistful, then it's resolute, and now it's deep contentment. You can kind of hear it in his, his uh, voice as he closes out the psalm. He says, Oh, Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. And I like that idea of deep contentment in the psalmist as he writes this verse. He has, he has found his contentment. He has found that the one who trusts in the Lord of hosts is the one who is blessed. So go back to our word study on uh, Parapodemos. If we go back to First Peter. But then turn over to 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. So we saw the first instance of Peripodemos was in Hebrews eleven thirteen. Now we're looking at it in 1 Peter 2, 11. So two out of the three are written in this one letter. 
And he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. What is odd about this passage is that it uses both terms, aliens and strangers, and this time it is the word strangers, which is the paraphidemos word, rather than aliens. Um, The word alien here is from the Greek word uh, uh, poroikos or poroikos. And this, uh, this time, the word has more of a familiar meaning, though it's used four times in the New Testament, and the NASB translates it as alien each time. It has more of a, a feeling of, like, neighborliness, um, as in, like, this, the alien is certainly a stranger, but one who is understood, one who is known. And so what we get from Peter in this passage is both this, this idea that, hey, you're a stranger, even though you kind of understand and are understood, and then we get this other idea of you're also a, a stranger in that you don't belong here at all, and everybody knows it. And that's, that's kind of what he's trying to get across in this passage. And also, lest we forget, for the sake of our text today, that this passage also comes immediately after Peter de- declares these aliens a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession in uh, chapter 2 and verse 9. So no, Peter is not talking about little green men from Mars, nor some weird, levitating, heart-glowing, phone-homing thing from the 80s. He's talking about a temporary sojourn for us who are the chosen, just as he continues to say. Because go back to our passage, this word, who are chosen, or this phrase, who are chosen, that kind of closes out verse 1. This is the Greek word eklektos. We know this word, right, from which we get the English word elect. And I've got to harp on this for a minute, and you'll even see if you've got the, the, the questions in front of you. I hope that the discussion will end up going into this too. The word chosen or elect here is in the original Greek right up next to the word parapodemos or alien. So ESV actually gets it right when it puts those words next to each other. You are a chosen alien or you are an elect exile, as the ESV says. An elect exile, a chosen alien rather than having it at the end of the verse where we kind of get a misunderstanding by looking at it right next to the foreknowledge of God. Okay, that's key. And that's one of the reasons why we need to go back to the Greek text occasionally because sometimes even the non-Arminian standard Bible will get it wrong. Or, (laughs) so you got to go to the elect standard version, right? right. Clark knows what I'm talking about, yeah. (laughs) Um. So the word, uh, yeah, it's right next to each other. In other words, though the English separates the two by sticking all those place names in between, the real point of the sentence is to combine the two. We are chosen for inclusion as God's people. We are chosen from or out of a group of people who are not chosen. We are taken from being at home in this world to being at home in another. And so we are chosen for a privilege and a blessing which this world cannot satisfy. Now we all know, that God's electing, that is to say, his sovereign, predestining choice is present in the New Testament very clearly in such passages as Acts 13, 48, Romans 8, 28 through 30, Romans 9, 11 through 13, Romans 11, 7, Ephesians 1, 4 through 7, and 11 through 12, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, 1 Timothy 5, 21, 2 Timothy 1, 9, 1 Peter 2, 9, Revelation 13, 7 through 8, and Revelation 17, 8, just to name a few. If you want those passages, I'll give them to you afterward. But 
there are three ways in which the New Testament actually presents this teaching of God's sovereign election. And those three things are what I want us to focus on right now. First, first, the New Testament actually teaches about God's sovereign election of his people as a comfort to us, which should give us a hint as to why Peter then is starting off his book with this. If you're chosen by God, that's a comfort to you, or it should be. Think of how Romans 8, 28 through 30 puts it. He works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Then all those whom he calls, he justifies and glorifies. How should that not bring us comfort? What a great and glorious comfort, right? So that's the first way it's used. Second, the New Testament teaches about God's sovereign election of his people as a reason to praise God, which also I think fits with the whole context of 1 Peter And suffering, getting ready for the suffering to come. So in Ephesians 1, right after saying that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, why? Well, it says in verse 6, why? To the praise of his glorious grace. And just in case you didn't get it, he says it again in verse 12. He says, to the praise of his glory. That's why he chose us. That's that's right there in the context of the passage. And when we see in, in each other the sovereign choice of God and salvation, we cannot help but praise God too, right? Seeing God working in your lives brings praise out of my soul because I'm grateful that he's working in your life. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2-4, through 4, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Why? Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Or he says similarly in 2 Thessalonians, I guess the Thessalonians needed this reassurance. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. So, this is the second thing, the second reason why the New Testament teaches the sovereign election of, of God as a reason to praise God. So first was, uh, what was it, Um, as a comfort to us. Second, as a reason to praise God. And then third, as an encouragement to evangelism. And this one might come as a surprise to many who who want to think about Calvinistic leanings and doctrines as, uh, you know, leading to the frozen chosen or some caricature of a fatalistic, it'll all work out with or without me kind of uh, outlook. No, instead, this should be an encouragement to evangelism because the sovereign choice of God in salvation actually should, should make us bold and heroic in our level of evangelism because we know we can't fail. We can't fail. His Spirit who is working in us is the same Spirit that brings about the salvation of those souls. Just as Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the, the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. So he endures these things, a part of his evangelism, because he knows they're chosen. And he wants them to share in that eternal glory. It's a guarantee of success. The chosen are out there, and all we are asked to do is to tell them about what they are missing in their lives, and then he'll work the rest. Or as our Lord put it in John four thirty five, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. 
So it's a comfort, right? It should bring praise from us as we see it in each other, and it should lead us to evangelism. That's why he teaches this wonderful, uh, or this wonderful doctrine of, of salvation by the sovereign choice of God, not only here in 1 Peter, but all through the Scripture. And, and this misunderstanding is what might be natural to see in Peter's next clause, because as I mentioned, if we don't have that word chosen up there with exiles or with aliens, and we have it here at the end of, the, of verse 1, like we do in the uh, New American Standard, you end up getting a little bit of a mix-up because it's right next to um, the foreknowledge. And so if we asked right then, how does God choose us, and then moved on to the next clause, we might think that it is based on God's foreknowledge of us coming to faith. Peter says, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, first of all, note what I said earlier. Okay, I already mentioned that. The Greek word for chosen is actually found right next to the word for alien. Second, note that the foreknowledge of God is on the person. When we look through the scriptures and we see the foreknowledge that's actually mentioned, we know that it's the foreknowledge of God is on the person rather than on the fact of the future of their faith. In each instance where it's actually talked about. And um, we can get into that once again after class if you're interested. In fact, Wayne Grudem uh, talks about this from the perspective of Romans 8.29, saying that the way in which this foreknowledge regarding salvation is personal in that passage and involves a saving relationship. This means that Romans 8.29, instead of saying, and this is Grudem's words here, so not just Doug, because I don't know Greek, but he says, instead of saying those whom he foreknew, it should be understood by us in English by saying something like, those whom he long ago thought of in a saving relationship to himself. Now, that's a lot more words, a little bit of a hard thing to chew on, but, uh, but that's, that's how we should understand it based on the way that it's, it's spoken in Greek. Those whom he long ago thought of in a saving relationship to himself. So third, Scripture never speaks of our faith as the reason that God shows us. For example of this, think about how Paul makes the argument of Romans 11. He makes the case of God's choice being based on the purpose of his will rather than on the will of the one who will one day be in in faith. And the same thing is in Ephesians. It is in love that he predestined us. Why? According to the purpose of his will. Fourth, because election based on something good in us, like our faith, would be the beginning of salvation by merit. We all understand that. And since we just went through Galatians for several months, I won't harp on that. Fifth, because predestination based on foreknowledge of a person's faith still does not give people free choice. And that's often what the, the goal is from those who argue that, um, that predestination is based on the foreknowledge of, of uh, God that we will come to faith. No, it still doesn't give free choice because we know the state of man. We know it from Romans 1 through 5, don't we? with his whole will, heart, and desire corrupted by the fall. And because God's foreknowledge of the destiny of a man either means that he must determine the destiny or that he must determine the destiny or that something is greater than God and controls that destiny. I won't go any further down this rabbit hole, but if you want to talk about Arminianism or Molinism or middle knowledge, come see me after class and we'll talk. But I think that this helps us to understand 
the true relationship between God's sovereign electing choice and God's foreknowledge. His election is unconditional. That's what we've got to keep in our minds. His election is unconditional. After all, as it says in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And so we go back to our passage and even though I've got a whole bunch of wonderful stuff that I wanted to be able to get to, we're getting low on time, so I'm going to start talking even faster. Sorry. And so we go back to our passage of 1 Peter 1, reread it in the way it is intended in Greek. Those chosen aliens are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is where we frame the doctrine of foreknowledge, by the way. It's decided by the absolute sovereignty of God. It's energized by the absolute power of God. And it's made real and perfect by the abundant grace of God. In other words, and we see the foreknowledge of God. And this is key. This is actually something that um, I love Louis Burkhoff. I love his systematic theology. And the way that he puts it is foreknowledge is actually one of the three aspects of providence, of God's providence. So it's only a portion of the story anyway. When we have a, doc, a fully orbed doctrine of providence, what we actually get is that God has foreknowledge of events. Why? Because he foreordains them, which is the second part of providence. And he has the power and the will to carry out what he has decreed, which is the third part of providence. So in other words, foreknowledge even by itself isn't, isn't um, properly thought of. And if you really want to see this, there are, the Bible teaches clearly 11 different places, and I have verses for all of these too, if you want to come see me after class. You just come and see me after class, I guess. Um, 11 different places, oh, different ways in which God shows his providence, shows this foreknowledge, foreordination, and decree. Um, in the universe at large, in the physical world, over brute creation, over the affairs of the nations, over man's birth and lot in life, over the outward successes and failures of men's lives, over things seemingly accidental or insignificant, in the protection of the righteous, in supplying the wants of God's people, in giving answers to prayers, and in the exposure and punishment of the wicked. These are 11 places where we see God's hand of providence working within this world. In other words, pretty much everywhere, right? So this is really important for us that we understand our relationship to God and um, Peter, as he goes back, as we go back to our, his passage, uh, he follows up this statement um, in a way that is really exceptional. Because as strangers and aliens in this world, knowing that it is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, then we actually see where he's going with this. So in other words, the sanctifying work ends up coming out of the foreknowledge of God, which is a part of being scattered as an alien among the people. We are aliens, and we should feel like aliens, and it is a gift to feel like aliens. And so part of the effects of sanctification in this passage is that is to no longer desire or to desire to a lesser degree the things of this world, and instead to desire the things of heaven. I once talked with a missionary who had been over in the Philippines for about 30 years, 
after growing up in the States. And he said that his life in the Philippines had kind of crowded out his memories and his cravings from his earlier life in, in the States. And so though he still wanted the occasional hamburger and hot dog, what he really actually find, found satisfying was lumpia and pancit. And I don't know if you've ever had those, but man, they're, they're good. I can understand why he would want that. But that was what was really satisfying to him. His home had transformed and his appetites along with it. And while this isn't a perfect analogy because we don't want to be conformed to where we are, (laughs) rather transformed, it still is helpful because um, there is a way in which our lifestyle changes and our appetites transform and we desire something very different from our original state. Instead of hamburgers and hot dogs, we want lumpia and pancit. That's what we want. We become aliens to this world and its things and its and the desires of, uh, and we desire instead the things of heaven, the things of God instead. And we get the hint, a hint of this principle in the passage by the way that Peter says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. In other words, when he's talking about our state in this world and the work of the Spirit in our lives, it sanctifies us, it sets us apart, it makes us more alien as we go on. I'm going to skip down because I don't have a whole lot of time here. So there are three stages to sanctification. I'll throw this in there. First, sanctification begins at regeneration. Second, it increases throughout life. Third, it is completed at death. The first stage of sanctification is completely unilateral, right? The Spirit regenerates while we are dead, Ephesians 2.1, Colossians 2.13. And the third stage is, properly speaking, also unilateral in that God is the rightful authority over the power of life and death. So he chooses a year, day, and moment of our entry into glorification. But the second stage of sanctification, increasing throughout life, is something which exhibits two major things. First of all, cooperation with that Spirit of God, and then obedience to God's commands. And it's the second piece that Peter calls out in our passage. Our position as strangers and aliens in this world is in accordance with the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. So the state which God the Father has chosen for us is worked in us by God the Spirit in order to obey the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that it's Trinitarian in its function, and that it's also transformative, as we've already said. But notice the obedience to Jesus Christ is bound to the clause, be sprinkled with His blood. Why is this? Because we see that the natural consequences of being chosen and sanctified is that we obey more often and that we are sealed in grace. Not that the obedience leads to the sealing, but rather that as, um, as we are chosen and sanctified, we see those two things more clearly. Now we should note something very interesting in the way that Peter calls out this security found in the sovereign election of God. He says specifically, and be sprinkled with his blood, and this is obviously an allusion to the sacrifice of Christ, right? Which in turn was the whole point of the old Mosaic sacrifices, was to foreshadow what he did. And MacArthur in his commentary does uh, something kind of interesting here when when he talks about this. He goes back to the story of Moses sealing the covenant which God made with Israel at the foot of Sinai. And so as we close up, I want to read a few semi-lengthy passages. And, um, and we're going to get into um, something very key here. 
as we close out. Go over to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. For the discussion leaders, I'm sorry I'm not leaving you as much time as I expected. I'll do better in the second class. Sorry. That doesn't help you guys, but... (laughs) All right, Exodus chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 3. Then Moses, and this is at Mount Sinai, then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now let me ask you a few questions, and these are going to be rhetorical because we don't have time, but who built the altar? It was Moses, right? Who in this passage offered the burnt offerings? It was the young men, right? Who sacrificed the young bulls? It was the young men. Who took half the blood and put it in the basins? It was Moses, right? Who sprinkled the other half on the altar? Moses once again. Who made the promises to keep the words of the Lord? The people did, right? Who sprinkled the blood on the people? Moses. Who made the covenant? The Lord with the people, right? But let's look at the corresponding passage over in Hebrews. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And I love this passage, by the way. This is great. We're going to start in verse 19. Hebrews 9, verse 19. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. Okay, we've seen that already in Exodus. Verse 22. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So there's a nice theological point in the middle of this. Right? What we're getting is a little bit better of an understanding of what happened with Moses and the people. And then picking up in verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. Okay, so the copies are on earth. They're copies of things in the heavens. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So in verse 23, 
what were the things that Moses sprinkled with blood called? They were called copies. And in verse 24, who entered the holy place? Christ. Who appeared in the presence of God for us? Christ. Whose blood was offered in heaven? Jesus' blood. In other words, the sprinkling of the blood, which Peter is talking about in this passage, in our passage today, is actually a seal of a covenant which is made by God with God. And the people of Israel failed to keep their covenant with God, but the new covenant has no failure because it is God keeping covenant with God instead of God with Israel who failed. It's God with God. He built the true altar in heaven. He built the true holy place in heaven. He offered the true and holy sacrifice in His Son. And He now sprinkles His blood on His people in order to seal the election that He chooses, the choice that He made sovereignly, and then He makes continually. And so it will never go away. And so what do we get? Well, this is where the passage ends. Grace and peace in the fullest measure. 1 Peter 1, 2. We get grace and peace in the fullest measure. So we see now why Peter kicks off this book about standing firm in the midst of suffering with a reminder of the sovereign election of God. Because it is in the very knowledge of God's sovereign choice that we're able to find grace and peace. And what would we need more than grace and peace as we encounter trials and suffering? Right? We wouldn't also need them and want them, and and wouldn't we also need them and want them in the fullest measure? And so wouldn't we also want the power holding us to that grace and peace to be much greater and more sure than our own? Don't we want the greatest power giving us grace and peace? Praise God for who He is, right? Praise God for His unchecked sovereignty and His absolute authority when it comes to salvation. Praise God for His sovereign choice of you and me. Praise God. Soli Deo Gloria, right? Let's pray. And then we'll go to our discussion groups. Dear Lord, we thank You for this wonderful message. We thank You that uh, in the midst of any suffering or persecution or hostility or, or anger from others around us and the anxiety that comes with it, we know that you have sovereignly chosen us because you are working your sanctifying work in our lives. We see it. We also know it because we know that we are strangers here, and we thank you for that. Remind us of it every day, every moment of every day, so that we can honor you and so that we can yearn for the highways to Zion. Strengthen us, Lord, now and forever, to your glory and for your awesome in glorious name. We thank you for Jesus, for his sacrifice. We thank you for the spirit and the regeneration we receive through him and the sanctification as well. And we thank you and praise you and say this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.